Good morning. We uh, greet you in this beautiful autumn morning in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, as we begin this morning, uh, we need to note uh, the death uh, this morning at 515 of Kathy McGee, who had uh, been a part of this class for a very long time. She and her husband John, and uh, John was here, I guess, two weeks ago uh, when we were here together. And uh, uh, Kathy was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer just a matter of a few weeks ago and uh, fought bravely against that disease, but we got word that she had died at 5.15 this morning. We don't know anything else at this point about uh, details, but we do know that our sister has gone to be with the Lord uh, and that her family is in shock and in grieving. And so as we begin this morning, let's particularly begin with prayer with the McGee family in mind. Our Father, in a very urgent sense, we come before you in the name of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, the author of life, the Savior of sinners. And Father, we just come to you to give thanks for the life of Kathy McGee, who we knew as friend and witness whose life showed constantly the joy of knowing you, experiencing the forgiveness of sins, and uh, the gift of life. And Father, we thank you for her infectious joy, and we confess that we will miss her. Father, it is not our job to commend her to you, for she was yours and is yours forever. But Father, we, we do commend her, just based upon our own knowledge of her and her witness to you, with thanksgiving for what you gave to us and to her husband John for so many years, uh, and to their children and grandchildren. Father, we just pray that you'll be with the McGee family that your spirit will be a comfort unto them and the assurance of Kathy's uh, salvation will be of immense comfort to them, her witness, her joy. For we know that truly, even as to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, that Kathy is even now in that sense, in the presence of the Christ she loved and served. And so, Father, we just come to thank you for the gift to us of Kathy, the gift to so many. We pray that you will show your grace and glory and gospel through her, even in the testimony about her now that she is with you. Father, we thank you for the gift uh, that the McGees are to this church, and we are reminded that as a church family, we grieve also. And so, Father, we ask that you would bless our grief, for it is the grief of believers and the knowledge that we are separated now, only to be reunited in the future. We pray particularly for John and the family. We lift them up. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm sure we will be hearing uh, in due time about funeral arrangements. Now, I need to ask a pertinent question. 
Am I going blind or is it darker than normal in here? It is darker. Okay, good, because I can't see the scriptures. So, uh, this is a new thing, either for my urgent medical concern or for something else. Uh, but. All right, at least I'm not alone. I see some, some light. Thank you very much. We are almost at the end of Leviticus, and so let me just kind of tell you what I, what I think we will do and where we are. Uh, I think we will read through the end of Leviticus today in order that next week we might do a review, uh, particularly looking at Christ in Leviticus. And uh, the material that we have this morning uh, we're just not going to move through too quickly, so that I'm just telling you kind of the plan, but uh, clearly we are reaching the end of the material that God gave to Moses to give to Israel in this passage. So we begin in chapter 25, verse 35. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God, that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you to the land of Canaan, to give you the land of Canaan, and to be your God. I guess we should continue. Look at the next passage. And if your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired servant and as a sojourner. He shall live with you until the year of the jubilee. Then you, he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over them ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. As for your male and female slaves, whom you may have you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. You may also buy from among the strangers who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you who have been born in your land, and they may be your property. You may bequeath them to your sons after you to inherit as a possession forever. You may make slaves of them, but over your brothers, the people of Israel, you shall not rule one over another ruthlessly." If a stranger or a sojourner with you becomes rich and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him, or a close relative from his clan may redeem him, or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. He shall calculate with his buyer from the year when he sold himself to him until the year of the Jubilee. And the price of his sales shall vary with the number of years. The time he was with his owner shall be rated as a time of hired servant. If there are still many years left, he shall pay proportionately for his redemption some of his sale price. If there remains but a few years until the year of Jubilee, he shall calculate and pay for his redemption in proportion to his years of service. He shall not treat him as a servant hired year by year. He shall not rule ruthlessly over him in your sight. And if he is not redeemed by these means, then he and his children with him shall be released in the year of Jubilee. For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. 
I am the Lord your God. One of the things we kind of take for granted in the world today is something of a social safety net. And uh, that goes back long before the social safety net was the government, and it goes back to the fact that where you find human civilization, you find some means of uh, seeking to help those who cannot, or for that matter, in some sense, do not help themselves. And uh, dire financial circumstances are just a fact of life. And uh, in the, the situation of Israel, given the distribution of the land, there could be any number of reasons, but one of the reasons would be the loss of, uh, of an income earner or someone to uh, till the soil or to do the adequate things to, to keep the family enterprise going. In any event, very quickly you see the recognition, even within Leviticus, that there are those who are wealthier and those who are less wealthy. There are those who are more industrious and are less industrious. But there's a clear distinction made here in chapter 25, and that's between those who are not of Israel but in Canaan and those who are of Israel. And the point here, three different paragraphs, is that no one who is an Israelite can be in a permanent form of slavery, at least by another Israelite. And even if there is this, as you see in the second paragraph here, if there is a situation of indentured servitude, still the fellow Israelite is not to be treated harshly. The word that's translated here usually is ruthlessly and is to be treated with respect. There are some duties not to be assigned to this fellow Israelite, even if he is an indentured servant. So there's a clear distinction between those who are Israelite and those who are not. Now, if you're looking at this, your first thought may be of a, uh, of a discrimination on the basis of national or tribal identity. Well, it comes down to a tribal identity, but the theology here is that God has made covenant with Israel, and Israel, in this in that very last passage, that Israel is to be God's servants, all of Israel. And so if some of his servants become servants to one another, they cannot be so indefinitely. And so there's the year of the Jubilee, and they are not to be mistreated. So it's a very interesting passage. It's a, it's a passage that, uh, that, that certainly reminds us of how the world picture has changed, not in some ways, not, not that, say, poverty has been eradicated nor, or, or any kind of indentured servitude. Uh, it is to say that uh, the clear distinction here is between how an Israelite is to be treated and how others are to be treated. And uh, there's more. And perhaps you noticed it, or perhaps you didn't. But if there is a man from within Israel, and it appears to be here in almost every conceivable case, a man. If there is a fellow Israelite who reaches the point of absolute destitution and debt and becomes effectively the indentured servant of another, he may be redeemed by his near male kinsman. Now, if according to plan we really do get to look at uh, Christ in Leviticus, then this is where we're going to look, a very key passage right here. You'll notice that the, the male relative is stipulated uh, such that it could even be an uncle. It could be a brother. Uh, but the point is that this nearest male kinsman is to calculate the years, 
and is to redeem his kinsmen. The Hebrew word here is goel. And this is clearly a word associated with Christ, pointing to Christ, our nearest male kinsman. When Christ in the Gospels is presented to us, He is our kinsman redeemer. And of course, many people lacking a Jewish background and an adequate understanding of the Old Testament do not know that that is what is being referenced. But let's look at a passage like Isaiah 61, and we'll do this knowing we're going to come back here hopefully next week, but just look at Isaiah 61. It's the declaration of liberty which has come. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And of course, Jesus used those very words. As we shall see in Job chapter 9, if you just look over. Uh, Excuse me, 19. Job knows that his Redeemer lives. Look at verse 23. Oh, that my words were written in that Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, my Goel, my kinsman Redeemer. And at the last He will stand upon the earth. We'll look more at that in days to come. But what's so important here is to see that here we have a kinsman Redeemer. And you'll notice the practicality of the redemption that is at stake. It is a redemption from a financial debt, but it is a debt that the individual cannot repay. And over and over again, our salvation is pictured in just those terms, a debt we cannot repay. And uh, you can find yourself in this life in a situation of hopeless indebtedness. But uh, an Israelite could not be an indefinite, hopeless indebtedness. First of all, be the year of Jubilee. But all that we just read is about what would happen even before the year of Jubilee when a kinsman redeemer, knowing that his kinsman is in this uh, situation of servitude and debt, redeems him from the one to whom he owes the debt and, uh, and, and pays back the labor that would be due him until the year of Jubilee. It's a very sweet picture, and it is clearly a picture of Christ when, uh, for instance, in Handel's Messiah is that, that great oratorio and the the, the great thematic words come, I know that my Redeemer lives. Well, this is exactly where it comes from. But back to Leviticus. Chapter 26 is a chapter very much like what we would find in Deuteronomy very much like we would find anywhere in the Old Testament where God promises blessings to those who keep His law and curses to those who do not. Now, interestingly, in this passage, in Leviticus 26, some of the curses are 
almost beyond our imagination. So let's look, because if they were in Scripture, we are meant to imagine them. You shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Now, there is a legal formula that God uses over and over again in in the Old Testament, and in particular, you see here in the book of Leviticus, there's a sense in which I think you're thinking, we know this already. There's a sense in which you're saying, we have heard these commands addressed to Israel. Israel heard these commands addressed to the nation. Why? Why are we back to this? Well, just remember where we are already in the flow of biblical history. Just think of the Exodus and realize Israel, yes, knew all this, but sinned against God, breaking these commands anyway, and will do so again and again. It seems inconceivable to us. Let's, let's just be honest. Right now, we're not looking in the mirror. Right, we're looking at Israel. We'll look in the mirror in a minute. Prepare yourself for that. But you just look at Israel, and you recognize that here's a nation that said, in Deuteronomy, I set before you life and death. Choose life and live. Life is obedience to the commandments. Death is disobedience to the commandments. And yet, Israel disobeys again and again and again. And, you know, it, it's not like any one of them ends with anything other than absolute humiliation. You ever notice there's no golden age of sin? Seriously. Have you ever heard anyone give the testimony and say, yeah, you know, I'm, uh, I'm all sobered up now. Uh, I came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I got a wife and family and kids. I really longed for that period and I was a drunk. No. In other words, when, when you hear... <laughs> When you hear people give their testimony, it's about what they left behind and that to which they do not want to return. You would think that would be Israel's experience, but Israel keeps coming back to this again and again. That explains why the command is so clear. And and have you noticed that in Leviticus, things just pop out of nowhere? I think this is parent talk. And in particular, it's mom talk. I think, and I mean this no insult, I mean this as a tribute to moms. I think if you could hear your discourse, moms with small children during the day, if you could hear your discourse just written out like a narrative, you would think you were nuts. Because it is not one long narrative. It's one long narrative intersected by, don't put that there. Get your finger out of your nose. Just, you know, just continual, continual words of command that you have said many times before that you just have to say again, and it is like, someone said that, uh, you know, one of the, the, if, you, if, you, if you want a set piece, if you're writing a sitcom or you're, you're, you're looking at a novel, uh, that uh, uh, some of the set pieces for human discourse are, for example, a general commanding his troops uh, as they go into battle. And, you know, the one thing the general doesn't do is say, you know, make sure you're wearing or using chapstick. He's not really concerned about that. It is all about preparing for battle. Here's the plan. Here's the courage. That's where you go. March. Mom discourse is very different. And, and by the way, in life, we need mom discourse and we need general 
discourse. But the point is, evidently, Israel needed both as well. There are passages in which Israel is commanded where God, like a commanding general, is saying, go. Here's what you're going to do. But there are passages, like you see here in Leviticus, in which it is like an interjection of something obvious in the middle of what we thought was something else. So in this sense, the penultimate chapter at the end here of Leviticus is very much like Deuteronomy chapter 40. You shall not make idols. just, Just very clear. You shall keep my Sabbath and reverence my sanctuary. And then in verse 3, again, very much the blessing and curse formula. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for the sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword." I will turn to you and make you faithful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I, make, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you will be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. It is one of the most beautiful passages of promised blessing to be found anywhere in Scripture. And it is all about Israel being brought out of the land of Egypt and captivity there in order to be the Lord's personal possession, for Him to find His pleasure in them, and for them to feel His pleasure. The promise of a harvest is such that there's overlap. So the grapes overlap, the, uh, the, the grain, the grain overlaps, the wheat, and there will be old stuff that you have to throw away because there's so much new stuff. It's actually beautiful language here in Leviticus 26. In, in verse uh, 10, you shall eat old store long kept. And you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. It's just, in other words, this is, this is a bountiful harvest. This is plenty. This is God's blessing. They're dwelling secure. Five Israelites can chase out a hundred invading foreigners, and a hundred Israelites can chase out ten thousand invading foreigners. The sword shall not run through your land. It is a picture of kingdom, of the blessed kingdom. But that's for obedience. But you'll notice an even longer passage comes stipulating the punishment for disobedience. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all the commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. Now I want you to notice something because just in terms of the, uh, of the language here, There's a very clear agency that God is deploying. Now, I want you to notice this, because there is a hesitancy in much kind of 
hesitant modern theology and hesitant modern preaching to read God's agency clearly. God did not say, if you disobey me, I will allow these things to happen. He did not say, like the prosperity preachers sometimes say, that if you, will, uh, if you disobey me, then I will lift my hand of protection from you. That language is found in the Scripture. That is not what you read here. Here God says, if you disobey me, I will do these things to you. And the agency there is just very, very clear. God in His righteousness, God in His holiness, God in His honor, He says, not that these things might happen to you, I will do these things to you. It is a long passage. It, it is a passage that adds dread to dread. Enemies will come and defeat them. Their cupboards will be bare. In verse 14, but if you will not listen to me and will not do all the commandments, if you spurn my statutes, again, and notice the internality, if your soul abhors my rules. Notice also that even after the discipline, if it is not, if it is not that which leads to repentance and to return, then God's wrath will only be increased. Look at verse 23, and if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary to you, and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. Again, an incredibly clear passage here, and you'll notice the, the, uh, the language of walking with. If you will not walk with me, I will not walk with you, and instead I will punish you seven times, sevenfold for your sins, and I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. So in other words, God identifies so clearly with His covenant that to break the covenant is to defy God directly, and God will vindicate His covenant. Now, by the way, you say, man, that was a real word of warning to Israel. Of course it is, but it is also a word of encouragement to us. The new covenant in Christ's blood is one that God will defend in His honor forever, and thus our salvation is secured because God will defend His covenant against anyone who might make claim against it. Verse 25, and I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. When I break your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in a single oven and shall dole out your bread again by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. The point is, ten women, that's a very small bakery for Israel. This is incredible poverty. Notice verse 27 where, again, we are told that he will discipline sevenfold for your sins. I was a little hesitant to go on because the most shocking verse in all of Leviticus, I think, by most common understanding, is verse 29. So rather than read it alone, let me put it into the paragraphic context. 
Verse 27, but if in spite of this you will not listen to me but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. And I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols, and my soul will abhor you. And I will lay your cities waste and will make your sanctuaries desolate, and I will not smell your pleasing aromas, and I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheathe the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. Well, this is where we just have to kind of breathe deeply and recognize this is God's Word. This is God's inerrant, infallible, Holy Spirit-inspired Word. This is God's oracular Word delivered to the children of Israel by the prophet Moses. Moses is, in this case, a mediator between God and Israel. Through Moses, the Lord has spoken to Israel these words of judgment which are among the most horrifying words of judgment found anywhere in Scripture. When people think of Leviticus, they think of, of uh, how you do this sacrifice and that sacrifice and how exactly you handle this situation and that situation. And they think often of the end of Deuteronomy at the end of the Pentateuch as, uh, Pentateuch as the climactic uh, declaration of blessing and curse. But it is hard to come close to these verses from Leviticus chapter 26. I said that one verse is often seen as the hardest verse of the entire book. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. Just to make a point, this is God's condemnation. This is God's curse upon them. It's not God's command to them. You'll notice that what you have here is God describing a situation that Israel will bring on itself and the judgment that he will execute by his hand. But the moral responsibility is upon the sinner. The moral responsibility here shows the desperateness of their sin. And remember that of all the peoples of the earth, the, the, the first taboo is against cannibalism. And, and so you can just do like a National Geographic or an anthropological survey, and you'll find that that, that, that is the great taboo uh, in just about every human society. But eating your own sons and your own daughters, and, 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 and by the way, yes, this language sometimes is, is taken over into the practice of child sacrifice, where it's, it's uh, sacrificing. It's not eating as in eating the flesh. But nonetheless, that is the language that is used here. And it's just a picture of the utter descent into sin, and it's a warning to Israel, uh, lest it find itself in this position in which its sinfulness has reached the point that Israel will devour its own sons and daughters. It's, it's horrifying language. It's bracing language. It's, uh, it, it's nearly beyond our imagination. And th- there's a sense in which we say, I just don't want to read it. Yeah, I, let, let's, just, let's just negotiate around this passage. But it's there. This leads, of course, to the interesting question, did this moment ever come in Israel's experience? And all of Israel's sin, did this moment come? Well, if so, in its fullness, we are not told of it. 
Verse 34, then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbath. Now, this happened twice in terms of the two exiles, but particularly in the length of the Babylonian exile. And so, God is saying, if you will not obey me, guess what will? The land. The land will obey me. And if I don't bless you, I'll bless the land. And the land will enjoy its Sabbath. And the land will enjoy your absence. And we'll do quite well. Thank you. The land will prosper. And as for those of you, verse 36, who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies. The sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight, and they shall flee as one flees from the sword, and they shall fall when none pursues. So this is just the fear, the fear that so struck in the the, uh, hearts of Israel that they run from a falling leaf. They shall stumble over one another as if to escape a sword, though none pursues, and you shall have no power to stand before your enemies, and you shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. You notice this is a particularly violent language. It's in the genre of devouring language, and uh, this is a form of divine judgment language found in Scripture. I will devour you. And so think of a predator taking apart a, uh, an animal. So I'm going to tell you something strange about myself. And, and I'm just going to make clear, it's, it follows the general principle that little boys actually never grow up. Mothers suspect this, you have no idea. When I was uh, a boy, science projects were the big thing. And uh, my science projects alternated between sharks and snakes. Snakes one year, sharks the next year. Snakes one year, sharks the next year. Always learning more about snakes and sharks. I was in Florida, which gave me plenty of opportunity, first of all, for the snakes, even in the backyard, uh, and for the uh, sharks, which uh, thankfully I uh, did not see face-to-face in their natural habitat, uh, although they probably saw me. But I did have plenty of opportunity to see sharks that have been drawn out and to see sharks in aquariums and things like that. I was fascinated by sharks. Uh, You know, until recently, until recently, Americans thought there weren't that many great white sharks off the American coast. And in particular, they thought that it would be rare that there would be great white sharks off of the Southern California coast. That turns out to be spectacularly wrong. And uh, we know that because of drones. And uh, so, for instance, on a recent day, one drone found seven great white sharks swimming within fairly close proximity to people who were enjoying themselves in a Southern California beach. That's disconcerting. <laughs> that, that's just disconcerting. And, uh, and, and, so, and, and besides that, they, they, they keep trying to say, that just shows that... Uh, they don't look to human beings as their normal food source, and uh, they generally approach human beings with curiosity. Yeah, right. There's a dad out there with three little, like, school-age kids, and a, a massive great white shark comes up to them and turns out to be merely curious. Merely curious. Uh, how many heart attacks does merely curious you know, bring about? And how do you look at a great white shark and say, oh, don't worry, he's in a good mood? Just curious. You know, that, that's just a test bite. Don't worry about anything. 
Okay, so I'm going to I'm going to tell you something. There is a YouTube artist, a YouTube sharker, and his name is Malibu Artist. I just want to warn you. His videos are they are addictive. And they are fascinating. I become eight all over again. And you see them. Now, two things are likely to result. Number one, you're going to be amazed at these creatures God has made. And secondly, you're likely never to want to go even into a swimming pool again. Uh, but when you look at it, you just realize that, yes, they look so beautiful. They look so serene until you see a video of them feeding and then you see a predator at work, and it literally is cold-blooded, by the way. This is, a, this is not a moral judgment. This is a biological fact. This is a cold-blooded killer. And you look at this, and you go, these things are basically mouths with muscles behind them. That's basically all they are. And I guess they have to have a digestive system. But to devour you, the picture of being devoured, this is not just a you're going to lose a battle. This is not just a you are going to be humiliated. This is you'll be devoured by your enemies. Look at verse 40. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me, notice he doesn't let up. He doesn't let up. And also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled... Very, very much like what would be picked up by the prophet Jeremiah. And they make amends for their iniquity. Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. And I will remember my covenant with Isaac. And my covenant with Abraham. This is very, very interesting in terms of covenant theology. That uh, the Lord mentions the covenant with those three patriarchs. Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham. And I will remember the land. But the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. And they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurned my rules and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, verse 44, yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them, neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. But I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I might be their God, I am the Lord. These are the statutes and rules and laws that the Lord made between him and the people of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. This, uh, this is covenant language, and I'm kind of doing today what you have to do in the text in order that we can amplify it when we're together next week. Notice the covenant language. God says, I'm going to do this because I made a covenant with Jacob. I made a covenant with Isaac. I made a covenant with Abraham. And it is because of my covenant with them that I am going to look with grace and favor upon you. I just want to remind you that is exactly the covenant theology of the New Testament. That it is because of the covenant that God made in Christ that he looks favorably upon us. There is never a sense in which, given our sinfulness, He looks favorably upon us because of us. He always and evermore looks favorably upon us because of the covenant who is Christ. 
Now, you'll notice that concluding verse in chapter 26. It sounds like the, the, the entire book's coming to an end. These are the statutes and rules and laws that the Lord made between him and the people of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. But then you'll notice the end of the book, chapter 27, verse 34, these are the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. Virtually the same formula. Then very quickly, chapter 27 is very easy to understand. It has to do with a vow and and the making of vows. And uh, so I'm going to read this and and then make some comments about what this means for us. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, If anyone makes a special vow to the Lord involving the valuation of persons, then the valuation of a male from 20 years old up to 60 years shall be 50 shekels of silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. If the person is a female, the valuation shall be 30 shekels. If the person is from 5 years old up to 20 years old, the valuation shall be for a male 20 shekels and for a female 10 shekels. If the person is from a month old up to five years old, the valuation shall be for a male five shekels of silver, and for a female, the valuation shall be three shekels of silver. And if the person is 60 years old or over, boy, this hits close to home, then the valuation for a male shall be 15 shekels and for a female, 10 shekels. And if someone is too poor to pay the valuation, then he shall be made to stand before the priest, and the priest shall value him, the priest shall value him according to to what the vower can afford. Let's just stop here for a moment. The making of vows is a serious thing in a culture in which there is no written contract. So just, just think of it this way. There is no written contract. So a man's word is to be a man's word. It's to be his bond. But there come times of disputes, and, and there come times when someone, either to make a point affirmatively, or sometimes even to, say, borrow, or to make a pledge, you have to take a vow. And you might take a vow against someone's life, which is a kind of a compound interest issue that works in reverse. And so here you had the valuation for all these different vows, and uh, you'll notice that children are worth less. So it, it, clearly, labor is what's going on here. It's labor. It's a man 20 years old up until, you know, uh, well, let's say this way, uh, 40. Uh, that's the prime age. So that is, that is, that is the prime value uh, for labor is during that period. Uh, you get discounted when you're little, and you get discounted when you're over 60. That's for humans. In verse 9, if the vow is an animal that may be offered as an offering to the Lord, all of that he gives to the Lord is holy. He shall not exchange it or make substitute for it, good for bad or bad for good. If he does, in fact, substitute one animal for another, then both it and the substitute shall be holy. And if it is any unclean animal that may not be offered as an offering to the Lord, then he shall stand the animal before the priest, and the priest shall value it as either good or bad, as the priest values it, so it shall be. But if he wishes to redeem it, he shall add a fifth to the valuation. Now, this is foreign to us, and this is, just to be honest, one of those passages that has less direct information to us, but this is the word of the Lord given to Israel, and this tells us that Israel evidently, with some repetition, found itself in this position of having to make vows and having to basically put up security for the vow and then having to make good on the security. And the first was a human. The the second was an animal. Verse 14, it shifts to property. 
When a man dedicates his house as a holy gift to the Lord, the priest shall value it as either good or bad as the priest values it, so it shall stand. And if the donor wishes to redeem his house, he shall add a fifth to the valuation price, and it shall be his. So again, you can even redeem your house, but as with the animal, you pay uh, an interest fee. Verse 16, if a man dedicates to the Lord part of the land that is in his possession, then the valuation shall be in proportion to its seed. A homer of barley seed shall be valued at 50 shekels of silver. If he dedicates his field from the year of Jubilee, the valuation shall stand. But if he dedicates the field after the Jubilee, then the priest shall calculate the price according to the years that remain until the year of Jubilee, and a deduction shall be made from the valuation. And if he who dedicates the field wishes to redeem it, then he shall add a fifth to its valuation price, and it shall remain his. But if he does not wish to redeem the field, or if he has sold the field to another man, it shall not be redeemed anymore. But the field, once it is released in the Jubilee, shall be a holy gift to the Lord, like a field that has been devoted. The priest shall be in possession of it. If he dedicates to the Lord a field that he has bought, which is not part of his possession, then the priest shall calculate the amount of the valuation for it up to the year of Jubilee, and the man shall give the valuation on that day as a holy gift to the Lord." In the day of Jubilee, the field shall return to him from whom it was bought, to whom the land belongs as a possession. Every valuation shall be according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Twenty goras shall make a shekel. Verse 26, but a firstborn of animals, which as a firstborn belongs to the Lord, no man may dedicate whether ox or sheep. It is the Lord's. So that's very important, by the way. You, you can't get double credit. It already belongs to the Lord, so you can't give it to the Lord. So you can't use that as, a, as such a payment because it belongs to the Lord already. And if it is an unclean animal, then he shall buy back at the valuation and add a fifth to it. Or if it is not redeemed, it shall be sold at the valuation. But no devoted thing that a man devotes to the Lord of anything that he has, whether man or beast, or of his inherited field shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted thing is most holy to the Lord. No one devoted, who is to be devoted for destruction from mankind, shall be ransomed. He shall surely be put to death. Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. And every tithe of herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdman's staff, shall be holy to the Lord. One shall not differentiate between good or bad. Neither shall he make a substitute for it. And if he does substitute for it, then both it and the substitute shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. These are the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. So that which is owed to the Lord is to be given to the Lord. You can't give it to the Lord twice. If it's of the the first fruits, it already belongs to the Lord. And uh, thus you can't give it to him. If it's unclean, then, uh, then you may give the increase by the sale of it, but to that you have to add a, uh, a commission or a premium as well. It's, it's just a reminder of the details that Israel had to live through. And again, this would not have been necessary if it weren't necessary. If this was not in the regular experience of Israel, uh, this would not have been included here. Now, ultimately, this makes you long for Christ. We, we do not live under this law. We do not keep our daily concerns in what Israel had to keep as its daily concerns. And it is because of the grace and mercy shown to us in Christ 
in a new and infinitely superior covenant. But this covenant is a covenant, too, of grace as well as law. And when we are together again next week, we will look at the theme of Christ revealed in Leviticus. And uh, I think that will be very, very sweet. For there is far more Christ in Leviticus than the average Christian has ever dreamed. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You with uh, grateful hearts for allowing us to work our way through the book of Leviticus. Father, we thank You for giving the children of Israel this book. We thank You for giving it to us. We thank You for giving the church of the Lord Jesus Christ this book. Father, may we learn from this book as from every word of Scripture which never falls fallow, which is living and breathing and sharper than any two-edged sword. And Father, even as we leave this day, having completed our reading and study of Leviticus in the words, word by word, Father, we pray that this book of Leviticus, your word of Leviticus, will do a work in our hearts, not only now but in the future, that will even be invisible to us for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.